Bibles, please turn me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Uh, it's been mentioned already that we've been so blessed the last couple of weeks as we've celebrated Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and we've been reminded of the gospel, the gospel of our salvation. Uh, and it's appropriate that we return to our series in the gospel and our world because we need to recognize that the gospel isn't just meant to make us warm and fuzzy when we worship. It's good and nice, that. But the gospel is meant to affect our lives and change how we live life, and how we enter into our world, and how we engage the challenges of our world, difficult challenges. And this morning, we're going to look at one of those challenges that is perhaps forefront of our attention these days, and that's the issue of the gospel and gender, and particularly transgenderism. And before I read our text and and get into the message, I do want to recommend a few good books on this topic that I've been helped by. Uh, first one is Transgender by Vaughan Roberts, and uh, What Does God Have to Say About Our Bodies by Sam Albury. Both of these men have written these valuable books because both of them, as I understand it, have struggled with, with this issue of, of same-sex attraction, not particularly transgenderism, but these are men who have understood this trial, yet they've come out of it believing the gospel, having their identity rooted in Christ. And, and so I do recommend these authors to you and, and those particular books. But let, with that in mind, let's turn to our passage uh, that will lay something of a foundation for our topic this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. This is God's word, hear it. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Only so far in the reading of God's word, may he reform our lives to its truth. It's sometimes very easy to lose sight of something that's right in front of you. I often ask my wife, dear, where are my keys? To which she replies, are you blind? It's right in front of you. It's very easy at times to lose sight of something that's right in front of you. And and may I suggest to you this morning that this has often been true with the gospel. In the gospel, there is something right in front of our eyes that it's easy to lose sight of. And what is that? Well, it's simply this. It's the fact that God cares for our bodies. In John 1 verse 14, we are told this wonderful mystery that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that for a second. The eternal Son of God, the Word of God, who was with God and who is God. He entered into our world, our experience. He was born of a woman. He was an infant who grew into a man. He faced all our struggles, our temptation, hunger, pain, shame, anguish. 
and he confronted our greatest foe, death itself, and he entered willingly into it. See, Jesus took on our humanity. He took on a human body. Why? To save humanity. To save humanity, which includes our bodies. Romans 8.23 speaks of the redemption of our bodies. A redemption that we all long for as we struggle in the brokenness of this world. And it is this redemption that Jesus alone has accomplished. He has been raised bodily from the grave, conquering death. He was ascended bodily into heaven where He is interceding now for us. And He will return bodily to deliver us from this broken world and from the judgment to come. And He will glorify us with resurrection bodies with which we will live with God for all eternity. See, God cares for our bodies as evidence in the incarnation of Jesus and the redemption of our bodies. Now, why is this something that we must keep in front of us and not lose sight of? Why must we not lose sight of the fact that God cares for our bodies? Well, because we're living in a day where the gift of our embodiment is abused. On the one hand, some overemphasize the body. Uh, Gnosticism, which is still around today, which disregards the body as unimportant, as evil, as, as, as less important than the soul. You also see this in radical feminism and patriarchy that overstresses those particular bodily distinctions. Yet on the other hand, some undervalue the body. Which brings me to my topic this morning. Namely, the gospel and gender, particularly transgenderism, which is an ideology and movement that radically undermines the beauty and the giftedness of our bodies. Now, if you think transgenderism isn't such a big deal, may I ask you, where have you been? It's all over. Whether it's in newspapers like Vanity Fair celebrating Caitlyn Jenner, who was born Bruce Jenner, or whether it's popular TV shows that display trans characters, transgenderism has been normalized and made acceptable in our society. To illustrate this, in, in Time magazine uh, in September 2016, they released an article entitled, My Brother's Pregnancy and the Making of the New American Family. Yes, you heard me right. My brother's pregnancy, the article, celebrates a trans man, Evan, who gives birth to a son. In fact, the the featured photo of that article has what appears to be a stocky, hairy, bearded man breastfeeding an infant son. You might be wondering, how is that possible? Well, you need to know that Evan was born a woman, yet at the age of 19 transitioned and sought to change her body from female to male through hormone injections. And see, this article with many others seeks to celebrate this. It seeks to normalize this kind of humanity, this transgenderism. Now, what exactly is this? And I think we need to think about this a bit more to understand what we're dealing with. 
Uh, transgenderism is an umbrella term that refers to people who were born either male or female, yet their gender identity, as they call it, the, the way they perceive themselves is different to their physical or genetic or their biological sex and their bodies. Chaz Bono, uh, the daughter of Bono, the U- U2 singer, uh, who became a transgender man, a transgender activist as well, said this, there's a gender in your brain and a gender in your body, and those two don't often match or, or don't always match. And so even though they say, even though you might be born a male or female, if you think and feel yourself to be a different gender, that's who you really are. And therefore, you are justified to transition to your felt gender, whether it's through cross-dressing, hormone therapy, or as far as sex reassignment surgery. And this really gets to the the issue of and the heart of transgenderism, and that is this. Transgenderism is the exaltation of subjective feelings over the objective facts of biology. It is the the prioritization of my conception of self over the God-given giftedness of my body. See, in transgenderism, the subjective self is king. So that the real you is the you, is what you feel. It's essentialism, essentially. Vaughan Roberts helpfully helpfully picks up on this. He says, many people have the assumption about what it means to be transgender, but fundamentally it isn't about surgery or how someone dresses. It's about how they feel inside. And the result then is if you feel and think yourself to be a woman, despite being in a man's body, that's who you are. And the truly frightening thing is, instead of just changing your thinking, correcting your thoughts, transgender activists are saying, change your body. Now, though in one sense transgenderism is a very new challenge, there's in another sense nothing new about it. It is a worldview with man at the center. It is an ideology where individualism is taken to the extreme. Some of you even call this world do the popular phrase today is expressive individualism, where our flourishing depends on our self-actualization, building our identity and basing our worth on our own perceptions, our own feelings and desires and choices. Uh, the philosopher and libertarian John Stuart Mills once wrote over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. And see, transgenderism has taken that personal freedom and has literally sought to be free from their bodies. Wherein their bodies is seen as a hindrance to who they need to be for to be themselves. That one transgender slogan is this, anatomy isn't destiny. And it's meant to teach us, apparently, that your body, your biological sex, need not restrict your self-identification. It need not limit you being your authentic self. Now, now so far, I've just wanted to kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with. What is the thinking and the ideology here? But there's a more important question to merely what transgenderism is, and, and that is why. Why speak about transgenderism? Why, why preach a sermon on this topic? Why should you listen and care about this topic? 
And the answer is quite simple. We are not simply dealing with transgender ideology. No, we're dealing with people. People who are made in the image of God, who are seeking self-worth not in God but in their gender. People who think by merely changing their bodies, they will be made whole. We need to realize that not all transgender people are loudmouth, proud activists. No, many are people in great distress because they sense a serious disharmony within themselves. This distress and disharmony has been called gender dysphoria, which actually is a diagnostic term for, for a medical disorder. It describes the distress that a person experiences because their psychological and emotional gender differs from their biological sex. We need to realize then that there are those who are in the thick of deep distress and disharmony regarding their gender. And, and guess what? They're in our communities. They're in our schools, and they're even in our churches, perhaps. And as Christians who are called to bear witness to the gospel, we must not only be aware of this challenge, but we must be prepared to speak the truth in love to those who are struggling with this challenge. And so with all of that in mind, I want us to consider Genesis chapter 1, uh, 26 and 28, which lays out the biblical view of our humanity, a humanity that is gendered and bodied. And as we look at this text, there are three things we need to see, three things that we also need to communicate to our culture. The first, first thing is this, God has created us. That should be quite obvious from the text. Genesis 1.26 says, quite simply, Then God said, let us make man in our image. See, according to God's inspired word, we are not the products of evolution. Our bodies are not the result of modification over millions of years of natural selection. That is all to say, our bodies are not accidental or incidental. No, we are created by God. And we are created with, with bodies. Genesis 2, 7 says, The Lord formed the man from dust, from the, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. See, we are living creatures with a body and a soul, both of whom are essential and intrinsic to who we are. To prove this, to, to prove that our bodies are essential to who we are. Sam Albury makes this observation. He says, when people hurt your body, you know that they have not just damaged property you own. No, they violated you. What you do to someone's body, you do to a person. Which is all to say, our bodies aren't unimportant. No, they matter. They are essential to who we are. They're essential to our true self, if you want to use that terminology. See, God has created us as living creatures with a body, a body that's been created wonderfully and fearfully. That's what David says, right? Psalm 139, 13-14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In a sense, each one of us is handmade by God. We are not made in China, mindlessly manufactured in bulk. No, each of us is personally and purposely made by God Himself. 
Now, now, to understand this has tremendous implication of how we ought to think of ourselves and of our bodies. We are not self-creating, self-constituting creators who fashion our bodies after our own ideas and feelings. No, we are living creatures made by the living God. And true freedom and true joy is found in embracing our creatureliness, in embracing our Creator's plans and purposes for us. I love this quote by quote an illustration by Vaughan Roberts. He says, True freedom, according to the scripture, is found not in asserting our radical independence and trying to be who we were made to be. No, true freedom is found in embracing or being who we are. A fish that decides to make a bid for freedom by jumping out of the water will not be free because it is created to live in water. And as soon as we try to become what we are not, far from enjoying freedom, we cannot expect to flourish. Dear friends, we need to realize that expressive individualism, this worldview of self, offers no freedom and wholeness. To deny our creatureliness and our creator is to choose the suffering of a fish out of water. It leads me to the second thing I want us to see from the six. Not only has God created us, but God has created us male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. It's often argued that Jesus never speaks about gender, yet in Matthew 19.4, he affirms this binary nature of our sex. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? See, our humanity isn't vague and fluid. No, we were made distinctly as male and female. And this distinction isn't a social construct shape our own feelings and thoughts. No, they're embodied and objective realities instituted by God. Again, Sam Albury makes this appropriate comment. He says, our gender identity is not something we search for in our feelings. That's something we find in our bodies. See, our gender identity is not chosen by us. It's given to to us by God who creates us as sexed and gendered bodies. And we need to recognize the the beauty of that. We need to recognize the, the equality and difference there. On the one hand, there is equality. Both men and women are made beautifully in the image of God. There's distinction there. There's There's differences. Our chromosomes are different, our brains are different, our voices, our body shapes are different, our strengths are different, our our reproductive systems are different, our roles and responsibilities are different. And and these distinctions, these differences are, are real and substantial. They're not fluid and malleable. They're essential to who we are and essential to how we ought to live. It's interesting to see that the binary of nature of male and female in Genesis 1 is developed for us further in Genesis 2. In, in Genesis 1, we find the adjectives male and female being used, and those adjectives refer to general biological sex, because even animals are made male and female. Yet in Genesis 2, we find those adjectives becoming nouns. We, we see it being changed to man and woman, which are now directly applied to Adam and Eve. 
So, so in Genesis 2, 24, 25, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, now what's the significance of the switch between an adjective to a noun? Well, it's simply this. A person's biological sex, them being male and female, reveals and determines both their gender, them being man or woman, but it also reveals their gender roles, being father or mother. See, God has created us male and female so that males go into men who potentially become fathers and husbands. Females go into women who potentially become wives and mothers. See, according to God's word, there is no distinction between biological sex and gender. Both are joined together and both conform to God's design for us as male and female. Now, again, think about the implication of this. We need to see our biologically determined sex and gender as good gifts of God that need to be accepted and lived in. The Bible says that everything you have by God is good and needs to be received with thanksgiving. In fact, after this account, at the end of Genesis 1, we see in verse 31 that God says, and it says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Now, to deny what God has made, to reject our maleness and our femaleness, to fundamentally, to do that is to fundamentally rob ourselves of the good that God has created for us. Again, go back to the illustration of the fish out of water. Just as it's not good for a fish to deny its nature, it cannot be good for us to deny the nature in which God has created us in. But, but why should a person accept and live within these categories of male and female? That is to ask, why should we embrace our maleness and our femaleness? Leads me to the third thing I want you to see this morning from our text. And that is not only has God created us, not only has He created us uh, male and female, but He has created us all with significance. Notice that humanity is created in the image of and likeness of God. Now, now, to be sure, there's much we can say about that. That's another sermon to know what all that means. But at the end of the day, those terms simply speak of our uniqueness, our worth, our dignity, our significance over every other creature, over every other animal and bird and thing of the earth. See, those, those terms speak of our Godwardness. We were a people made in the image of God for God. Again, we are not evolutionary blobs of tissue who are irrelevant and insignificant. No, we were made male and female in the image of God, and all of us therefore have inherent worth and significance. And this significance isn't lost. And this worth isn't lost because of our sin or our fallenness, or even our brokenness. In Genesis, 3, in Genesis 9, 6, in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, in James 3, 9, we see that even after the fall into sin, mankind still bears the image of God. Which means, beloved, a person may feel broken. They may feel an inward disharmony. There may be a great dissatisfaction and distress within them, but they're still the image of God. They still have significance. 
but see the way to find wholeness, the way to be freed from that distress and to be healed of that disharmony. The way to find it isn't to turn away from God and, and to reject His design. No, it's found in embracing who we are as male and female. It's found in returning to the God who made us for Himself. In fact, I would argue that if we denounce God as our Creator, if we deny the distinction between male and female, if we despise our gendered bodies that God has given us, we fundamentally dehumanize ourselves. Because we were made with inherent significance and worth as bodied and gendered human beings in the image of God. Psalm 8 celebrates and rejoices in the fact that who God has made us. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you have, are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Glory, honor, significance, and worth belongs to us, beloved. It belongs to us as creatures made by God, male and female, in His image. Now, my point this morning is quite simple, actually. We need to see and understand and communicate that God cares for our bodies. He created us, male and female, with significance. And we need to see and understand and communicate that our wholeness and our peace is found, therefore, in embracing our creatureliness and embracing our Creator's good design for us. Now, I know for those who are struggling with dysphoria, telling them to embrace God's design as a gift isn't easy. No, there's real distress, there's, there's real restlessness, and we'll get to the cause of that in a moment. But before we get there, we need to have a right view of who we are as humanity. This is where I really value Vaughan Roberts. Uh, he, he, he follows John White and he makes this point that we should have an art restoration view of man. Uh, what does that mean? Well, if you had a valuable painting that's been scuffed by dirt and you were asked to restore it, to bring it back to its former glory... Would you change it? Would you add some of your own ideas to this painting? Would you change the colors? Would you add to the scenery? No, no, you'd respect the original artwork. Why? Because it's the original that has value. It's the original that has significance and worth. Its glory lies in its artist's original intention. Well, dear friends, the same holds true for us. We are image bearers of God, masterpieces created in His image, created as male and female with significance and worth. And our glory and our good isn't found in changing that and turning away from it, but embracing our Creator's intention for us. And so with all of that in mind, I want to close with three words of exhortation because I think we need to be exhorted in particular directions. The first word I have is the word for the distressed. There are those who legitimately suffer with dysphoria. There are those who feel within themselves a distress and a disharmony who long to be whole, who long to be their authentic selves. And if that is you this morning then you need to know this. 
you haven't taken your distress and your disharmony serious enough. You haven't take, taken your desire to be whole and to be at peace serious enough. And guess what? Neither has transgender activists and influencers. They will say if you want to be healed, if you want to be healed of distress and disharmony, if you want to be whole and your authentic self, didn't this simply modify your body, mutilate your flesh? Dear friend, what foolishness. You are created by God with a body and soul, and distress and disharmony felt in your soul and your heart cannot be solved by modifying your body. Understand this, the distress you feel, the restlessness you have, the wholeness you long for is ultimately due to our fall into sin and our rebellion from God. See, sin has devastated every single one of us, whether you're transgender or cisgender, whoever you are. Sin has shattered us. It has shattered our relationship with God and it has broken us. It twists the good that God has made us for. It breaks us into pieces, creating disharmony and distress. It births restlessness and suffering. See, we are masterpieces created with significance and worth in the image of God. Yet we've been scuffed by the dirt of sin. Sin that has left us distressed and broken and hurt and restless. Yet, dear friends, praise be to God, there is hope. Because God has provided a true restorer. He has provided His eternally begotten Son who took on a human body, who entered into our suffering, our shame, our sin. Why? To save us. To save broken people. May I suggest you the greatest dysphoria, the greatest distress, the greatest disharmony ever experienced was experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Can you imagine that? The, the pure, spotless Lamb of God who enjoyed perfect union with His Father took upon on Himself all our sin, our shame, our brokenness. Sin and shame that he doesn't deserve, that isn't his, that isn't true to his nature. Yet he took it upon himself. Can you imagine his anguish, his, his turmoil, his agony? Yet he endured it all for us. Why? So that we would be redeemed body and soul. So that we would be made a new creation with new hopes and new desires. So that we would walk in newness of life. That we would die to self and follow Him. And that we'd put to death our old nature and put on Christ. So if you have been broken by sin, dear friend, no matter who you are, know this, there is hope and healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I know I've quoted him a lot, but I, I love this quote by Sam Albury. He says this, the problems we experience with our body were never ultimately going to be solved by our body. We may be able to relieve some aspects of our bodily brokenness. We can cure some ills and ease some pains. 
We cannot fix what's been broken. The only hope for us is the body of Jesus, broken fully and finally for us. And by looking to his broken body, we find true hope for our own bodies. Why? Because in Christ, our bodies are no longer identified by what we do with them or by what others have done to them, but what Jesus has done for them. And so we await the redemption of our bodies. Don't miss what's in front of you today. A perfect and whole salvation is available in Christ who not only saves us from past sins, He not only saves us from the judgment to come, but He saves us in the present. He, he transforms, He offers wholeness and healing. Deny yourself, therefore. Take up your cross. Follow Him. He calls upon you to come to Him and find rest because He's gentle and lowly and He will give you rest for your soul. But, but I think there's also a word this morning for parents. We need to realize that gender dysphoria is, is a growing phenomenon in the lives of our, in our children and our youth. Not only are children being taught this in school, but they're encountering the entertainment and online and, and among friends. In fact, one of the results of, of transgenderism being so prominent is what people have called rapid onset gender dysphoria which refers to cases where people uh, want to be transgender not because they sense brokenness within them. No, they, they, they want to fit in. They want somewhere to belong. They, they want to be part of a community. Uh, to, to prove the point, a 2016 study showed that only a minority of those who express cross-gender identity actually continue in it. They outgrow it. Nevertheless, all of this really indicates that parents have a mammoth burden upon them to lead their children away from death and destruction and dissatisfaction to wholeness in Christ. And so how must you as a parent respond when children and, and your children face transgender influencers and gender dysphoria? Well, I've got four points very quickly. Firstly, love your children. We need to approach our children with steadfast love, love that doesn't think and affirm everything they think and feel, but love that listens, that is tender, that values and cares, love that shows dignity, love that is more compelling than online influencers, love that is real. Secondly, engage their hearts. We need to ask questions that get them to, to reveal their heart and, and see what the issues are. When you ask them when they began to feel uncomfortable, we need to come to ask and how they came to understand that the issue was their gender. We need to ask how was it that their struggle has led them to, to think and feel about themselves. See, by asking sincere, hard questions, you not only display a love that listens, but you're hopefully starting a, a, a journey of real conversation that by God's grace can be used to help your children find their real and authentic selves, not in this world, not in their bodies, but in Christ. Now, Tim Geiger puts it this way, get to know the deep places of your child's heart through the context of hard but authentic conversations that come from seeking the Lord's wisdom from His Word. Thirdly, apply the Word. A transgender ideology falsely proclaims that our bodies don't matter. Yet, as we've seen this morning, God cares for our bodies. And therefore, we need to teach our children what God's view of our bodies is. 
We need not to be afraid to talk about our bodies, to talk about sex, to talk about gender. We need to talk about it as God's good gifts that He has granted us. We, we cannot neglect and we cannot allow our children to be taught by our schools and only taught once on a Sunday. And we need to seat them in the Word, teach them what God's Word teaches because God's Word is living and active. It revives the soul. It makes wise. It rejoices the heart. And it can give hope and comfort and life. And fourthly, display deep biblical and biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, much of the pull towards transgenderism flows from a lack of godly examples of what it means to be man and woman. In fact, one study says that uh, trans uh, girls who struggle with transgenderism often don't are, aren't pulled by a, a dysphoria. No, they, they just don't want to be girls. Why is that? Because there are unrealistic expectations of what it means to be a girl and, and for boys what it means to be a boy. And so what we need to do is we need to be careful of, of falling into and displaying worldly masculine stereotypes and worldly feminine stereotypes that end up creating confusion. But instead, we must be examples to our kids of what it looks like to be a biblical man and woman. And in so doing, shepherd and, and lead our children away from this ideology to Christ and His ways. But then finally, a word to us as a church. Uh, Vaughan Roberts points out that our response to transgenderism cannot and must not be either yuck or yes. We, we, we cannot dismiss this challenge as gross and too uncomfortable and remain indifferent to the distress of those who are struggling with this. But we also cannot merely accept it. We can't just say, well, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. This is how the world works. No. We need to understand that this is harmful. It's destroying lives. It's harming people emotionally, physically, spiritually. In fact, a study in 2011 found that transgender people who had sex reassignment surgery are 20 times more likely to take their own lives. See, despite of what uh, Time magazine says and despite what transgender activists want us to believe, the reality for the ordinary transgender person is not satisfaction, it's not joy, it's not wholeness. It's quite the opposite. Uh, to give an idea of this, a 2002 study showed that 41%, 41% of transgender men and women have attempted suicide. Compare that also with the rest of the population where the attempted suicide rate is 1.6%. Now, uh, now, we can't base too much on stats. They can be manipulated, but I think you get the point. We are dealing with people who are struggling, people who are distressed. And our response should be compassion. Not indifference, not mockery, but Christ-like compassion because we serve a Savior who is compassion. We serve a Savior who is called the friend of sinners, a Savior who drew near to the broken and the discarded. And we too, therefore, need to draw near and love with compassion. And there's something right in front of our eyes that we dare not lose sight of, and that is that we're living in a missions field. Uh, Russell Moore, in one of his articles, sounds this warning. He says, we must not be so drawn into the culture war that we think that our world is a battleground and not a missions field. See, our world is broken, 
men and women have been shattered by sin and self. And we have the good news. The good news that God cares for our bodies, body and soul, and He has provided redemption and restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our task, beloved, to sound this good news. To be good news people, to be gospel people in a broken and shattered world. And may that be true of us, and may God give us boldness and courage to be compassionate and courageous. Let's pray. Our great and glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that every Christian can attest to the fact that there was a point where we were broken by sin, left in pieces, left shattered under the shame and burden and weight of our sin. Yet you, with gospel light, spoke into our hearts. You brought healing and restoration. You brought forgiveness. And dear Lord, as we have tasted and seen your goodness in our own salvation, we pray that you would help us to point others to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. To point our broken world to the Savior of sinners who saves us body and soul. Help us in this. Help us to be courageous. And, and if there is anyone here this morning, perhaps some of the youth that are struggling with this particular issue, Oh, dear Lord, be merciful, be gracious. May they feel an openness to come to those in this church as those who are loving and caring, who will listen, who will share the gospel of grace with grace. Help us in this, we pray, in Christ's glorious and beautiful name. Amen.